right, you bunch of yahoos. Strap yourselves in for another episode of Dan and Don's Toxic Masculinity. In other words, shut up, sit up, and pay attention. And welcome back to another episode of Toxic Masculinity, where we are here to entertain, offend, defend anybody and everybody. So if you are a little, uh, you know, on the stitchy side, better put on your man pants here because you're in, you're in for a, another big induction of mascu- toxic masculinity. With my co-host here, the Predator Don Fry, yours truly Dan to be severed, and we have the special guest here right now. I'm not certain he needs actually probably three or four different introductions because we have, you know, I Sybil, Sybil, make it fast, right? <laughs> okay, when I first met him, I just knew him as Cactus Jack, but then then, then they came out to being this uh, mankind, and then there's Dude Love, but he's simply known as Mick Foley, a man of very many different talents, writing books, children's books to boot, to boot on top of that, so a man of many different facets, and, you know, we got just a mere hour with him, and uh, I don't think we're going to do him justice, but Mick, it's, it's uh, fantastic to have you in the house there with Don and myself. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. Uh, nice introduction. Yes, I was Cactus Jack when the two of us met. Uh, was either in, I know it was in Japan, but I, I'm not sure if we met. Kawasaki. No, I, I, I got, the, the, we were talking about this before you ever, ever got there. I go, I go, I go, I got to tell this story. I said, the first time I ever met, met uh, again, I did, did not know any of the other names. Yeah. I met this, this crazy guy by the name of Cactus Jack. <laughs> And I, I had never seen, I had never seen a thumbtack match before. Right. And your opening match at the Kawasaki Death Tournament Series was was a thumbtack match. So literally, I I I actually go out there and I, and I <laughs> you know hide behind the curtain. And I'm watching this match and I and I I, wa- I watch the referee sprinkle around uh, on the, the the mat what looks like thumbtacks. Right. Uh, thumbtacks, but I think it can't be can't be a real thumbtack. <laughs> but, but you're also you're in a ring. That uh, it's it's Bob Boyer, it's not it's not it's not a normal ring. It's it's actually Bob Bob Boyer that you guys have uh, for for ring ropes, and then you know you you, you do a match. Uh, you you wrestle like a, a Japanese wrestler. You guys go through it. It's all body slams, this that, crash bang, clotheslines, and crash bang boom, and falling down and, and the whole nine yards. And I'm thinking, okay, match is done. So I go back in, I sit down in my seat, and, and you come in, and you, you always wore like a shirt. Yeah, yeah. And so a couple of the young green boys, they come out there, and they, they kind of pull out, uh, pull out a shirt. And now I start hearing, you know, things that metal things that are hitting the floor. And one or two of them rolled over towards me where I'm sitting. I bent over, picked it up, and I'm going, and I'm thinking, my God, these are real. <laughs> and I remember the very first words I ever said to you, I like I, I said like, hey cactus, how often do you get a tetanus shot? You pause for a second, and go, every year, Dan. Every year I think it, well, it's at least he's being safe about it. He's being safe about it. So that was literally the first interaction I ever had with you was was uh, making that comment. And, and then even by later that night. When you and Terry Funk, you guys tore down the house, but then both of you still had to go to the hospital because you guys yeah. got third degree burns, second, cut up. Second degree. This, that. Second degree. Okay, sec. Okay, sorry, I <laughs> I, I was embellishing it just a little bit there. Okay, but no, it was. But but even the, even the following day, because at the we're airport, departing, yeah, we're departing the airport, and you've got on a t-shirt, and you still have 
like little red dobbits, <laughs> drip marks because of all the puncture holes on your body. You're seeing this white T-shirt, and you see like little, like little blood coming out here, little blood coming out here. <laughs> you, you tore your ear up. Bad case you acne, huh? <laughs> You got this big thing of gauze on the side of your head, <laughs> and then you got this this paper bag, and I think a, you almost look like a terrorist right now because you got all this hair, and you got all this gauze, and, and you got red doublets, and you got the paper bag strapped to your chest. I think, you know, just it was. It, yeah, just, that was that was some night. Uh, that was I've thought of like a one act play just on that one night because everything about it was just so surreal so it's dan's first day in that company when i was asking where we met i knew we'd done the japan tours together and i knew your first tour was uh with the kawasaki dream tournament because dan's the hottest free agent in in all of wrestling and all of a sudden he lands at iwa japan like none of us could figure out what's he doing with us we're the we're the blood and guts guys you know we're the garbage wrestling you could have written you could have written your own ticket but uh, we were happy to have you there but okay, but the okay, the funny thing about it is okay, there was two rings. There was the ring where I mean literally all the other matches took place inside of this ring with the Bob Boyer net. And then there was I actually had a normal ring. Yep. And it it, it, it did it did my my match with, with the Tarzan Goto there. And, and I mean it was it was just it was crazy just to to be there thinking like going, I really should be over here. I'm supposed to be a, 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 a bad, tough guy. So I, I go, I don't want to be in this Bob Wire match. I want to be with these subtacks. I go, ow, this is going to hurt. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was, it was so. It was. Uh, it was my first match was against Terry Gordy with the thumbtacks, and then the, then it was the bed of nails second round with uh, with Shoji uh, Nakamaki. But when we did the press conference for this whole tournament, you know, I'm I, Terry Gordy was one of the great pro wrestlers in history. It was one of those things where you would even ask guys who were on the tour with him with all Japan when he would have these great matches with. Uh, um, Oh, I'm try, trying to think. Uh, uh, I'm gonna, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank here. He was a great sumo sometimes, wrestler. Sometimes make the, when I start to think, that it just makes my head hurt. So I just I try not to do that anymore. You know? Well, he had great matches with Tenru and uh, the other guy. It will come to me. And I remember guys who were on that tour going, we think they're working together, but we're not sure because yeah. they that's the style they wrestled. And, Gordy get all fired up, and he was one of the most realistic guys there was. But then he had, he uh, had an overdose of some kind of pill on a flight to Japan. Uh, they had to revive revive him, like bring him back to life, and he was never the same. So he goes from being one of all Japan's top two or three foreigners to to you know working regularly with us. I cut my promo and I say, you know, I can't. I don't even know if I can do Cactus Jack anymore. But uh, you know, Gordy. I'll give you all the props. You used to be one of the best in the world, but now you're stepping into my home, and what are you going to do when you come face-to-face -face with 10,000 thumbtacks? And then I, I finished my promo, and as we're walking out of the press conference, Gordy grabs me by the shoulder. He goes, bro, nobody told me anything about no thumbtacks. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, don't worry, Terry. We'll be okay. So we came up with creative ways for me to end up in there. And I think this is the only... You know, Thumbtacks, like everything in wrestling, you introduce them, they're awe-inspiring, and then within three, four years, everybody's doing it. Right. But that was the one time I told Terry, I said, "When give me the bump, I'm going to sell my way over to the box attacks, and I'm going to kind of lay my head in there. Okay, bro, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to give me a good boot to the other side of my face. Hey, okay, bro. I said, you really got to lay it in. You had to tell Terry now because he'd lost that instinct. 
you sure about that? I'm sure. And there's something that I've called the uh, instantaneous Foley risk-reward ratio analysis that tells me whether or not a certain <laughs> move is worth doing. And it hurt to get, you know, boom, boom, you know, so you got the boot, the tax. But I got up and you do that. You all, you In pro wrestling, you work in a semicircle, or in this case, a full circle, where I sold my way around, making sure that every part of the audience could uh, could see, see that what, visual. See what just happened to you. And you, I got that 360 degrees of, oh, and I thought this was so worth it because there have been other things you do where it's like, nobody, you know, up until the UFC came around in 95, nobody knew what hurt and didn't hurt because we hadn't been conditioned that way, wrestling fans. And uh-huh. so a lot of times if you were working a hold in Japan, they knew. But in the United States, people have no idea what that hold was supposed right, to be doing and right. why. Maybe you have a commentator explaining it to them. But, you know, it did a lot for us. Well, it also, you know, it had made us have to, you know, work harder to reach that bar you guys had uh, set for us. But uh, something like tax in the face, that's pretty universal. And so I thought, yeah, that was that was worth it. I only did that bump once, but it was uh, it was worth the response we got. Oof, yeah, yeah. Don and I are like shaking heads. I, I don't know about that one. <laughs> that was uh, that, literally that was a crazy. I remember, okay, on that tour, I think there was like ten days in there, and I think there was like six six or seven different shows. I remember. Yeah. Yep. That. I, 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 I'm there on this tour with, with, with you guys, and like every day I'm going to the gym. And I, then, then by each night I'm going to, I'm just at the different, at the different shows, just sitting, really just, just watching the show because I wasn't really involved in one show. And that's actually at the Kawasaki Deathmatch tournament at the baseball field. And that, even that, just to see the, the parade of all the people that, that came in, <laughs> that was just, that was just so insanely crazy. That, you know, it was so many people there, and I kept thinking, as I'm walking out there to go, geez, don't don't trip and fall down now, Dad. This will, this will ruin your career if you trip and fall down. That's right. Terry, uh, Terry Funk came out on a white stallion. Uh, yes. I came out holding yes. a, uh, a cross of barbed wire, not realizing the, you know, the blank storm I'd be getting for, for that even 25 years after the fact. Should have thought that one through. This is just me trying to be agreeable. They said, cactus is on, and this is for you. And I said, okay, looks good. I didn't say... Wait a second. This is a major. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's, yeah. It's, at the time, you you look at it as it's work, and you're trying to you're trying to be as as a, uh, obliging as one could possibly be. Now, okay, but uh, the, the funny part is like there was like one. You guys had like one day off, and I remember you coming into the, you came into the gym, and, and you're sitting there and you're just watching me, but you're being very quiet and you're just watching all the things I'm doing, stretching, and I'm going through all my my. Uh, Shadow wrestling and shadow boxing right. and things of that nature, just going through all the stuff. And then, then, then you finally you said, "Dad, he goes, would you show me? Will you show me some moves?" Yeah. And I, and I, I paused and I'm like, "Going, I go, but I go, but but you're 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 Cactus Jack." I go, I said, "You've been doing this way longer <laughs> than I am." I go, I go, what could I possibly show you? And and and, and, and you made the comment. You said that you. You have a great threshold for paid. You, 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 you actually said, "I can't wrestle." I said, "But I, I have, I, I've got a great threshold for paid." And I'm going, "What?" And I started, and I started watching your matches after that. I'm going, "By God, the guy's right." 
I mean, he can't incredible wrestle. Threshold, incredible <laughs> threshold for pain. Okay, I would I wouldn't want to be a part of any of these matches that that you had. Well, you know what, Dan? I saw the writing on the wall based on what you guys were doing, and I knew that we'd have to start incorporating stuff. Now, I didn't know I was going to get the phone call from uh, Mr. McMahon a couple months after that. Uh, Deathmatch, and uh, Mr. Asano was our boss. Sorry, we're leaving the the, the predator out here with nothing Don't to worry, say. I'm watching. Uh, uh, so I, mean, I I kind of felt like if I go back, um, and even even in the all in the IWA Japan stuff, if I can incorporate a little bit of that, and the more of it I understand and can do, that even if I don't do it offensively, if I can work with people who do that, then that makes me an all... I wanted to be the guy that everyone liked to work with who would walk away and go, all right, you know, like, he, his stuff looks crazy, but he takes care of me. That was really important to me that I was somebody that didn't take liberties or didn't cost anybody a day at work. You know, I wanted the stuff to be physical and look good, and I, and I liked... Yes. Uh, when it was laid in, but uh, you know, nobody wants to have you know teeth broken or jaw broken or ribs or collarbone things that are going to cost you time away from uh, uh, from business. Yeah, I know you've I've asked this before, but again, I, I'm curious when you look at your various characters, what was character uh, take us through like chronological order? Like, what was was Dude Love the very first character? That Dude you ever Love was a, he was a figment of my imagination when I was 17 and 18 years old. Uh, was not rejected by a, a young lady who felt like the love of my life at that time. wasn't outright rejected, but she did call me the wrong name uh, when we uh, had the fir our first kiss. You know, I had a lovely time tonight, Joanne. She said, so did I, Frank. Well, at least you were in the middle of sex. <laughs> oh, yeah. When you're having sex and your wife calls out the wrong name. <laughs> That's not the voice of experience, is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> and so uh, I, I went back to my dormitory, and uh, I'm not saying this is a healthy way to deal with uh, emotional pain, but I was like, you know, a lot of people, when they can't uh, rationalize the pain they're feeling, they take it out in a physical way, which they can control. So, I mean, that's, a, you know, self-harming. That's really a serious deal. It's not as bad if you're me and you're just taking off from your, uh, your bed onto a stuffed animal with a super fly leap. Uh, and that's where the story, the dude love story came in, in, in there. I created this wrestler that was everything that I wasn't, you know, self-assured and cool and a hit with the women. Uh, and uh, so dude was something in my imagination that I created when I was a, a freshman in college. And when I became, I was driving through here looking at all the strong cactus game. The only thing stronger than the cactus game is the mustache game that you guys bring to the table. Very. <laughs> Are you growing a mustache? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, people can't see it as much because it's white now. But oh. you know, well, we did. I remember. Uh, but, but that's but, but that's the funny part there. Just to, to pause for a second, because I, I always tell people that uh, I started coloring my hair at age thirty-seven. I, I was going prematurely gray <laughs> at thirty-seven, and you know, I'm that's when I started my cage fighting career. I've kept. Yeah. I know psychologically thinking if you walk into a cage and across and you see, you know, someone that's going getting gray hair or something like that, you're not going to be as intimidated if you color it dark and dastardly right there. Now I was like going, ooh, that's a little bit more intimidating versus white, you know. And there was so that I, I famous the psychological. 
Dan, that famous quote when uh, you defeated Tank Abbott may have been the first loss that Tank suffered in UFC, and then you beat. You know, you had a decisive win several months later. But uh, they uh, they interviewed Tank, and he said he had a dream that he was mugged for twenty minutes by Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yeah, he, he felt like he was being yeah raped by Freddie Mercury. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, And that's a match that I saw on the bus there, the IWA bus. So we were keeping up with everything. And when we going back to what you said about learning something, when I saw the Japanese magazines, you know, the rest of the pro wrestling magazines covering what UFC was doing, I was like, oh, we're going to need to pick up on this. And so I remember specifically you showing me the banana splits. Banana splits. Banana yeah, splits. Yeah, because it was, uh, and even, even before UFC, I wanted to do stuff that was as wild as possible and follow it up with something technical that nobody would ever expect. So I remember yeah. uh, doing a number, you know, pretty impressive for my, you know, by my standards in 1990 because I didn't have the look and the build, you know, to strike fear into people. At least not until I came back, uh, you know, heavier and uh, and uh, more um, with more experience in '91. But in 90, I was doing a pretty good job on this guy. Even dropped the elbow off the ring apron over the guardrail, rolled him in so he was just about, you know, uh, comatose, you know. And then I rolled him up with a bow and arrow cradle and brought him backwards for the pin. And, uh, and Jim Ross, of course, you know, made the most of that. And so I thought anything that I can pick up that puts me ahead of the curve is a good thing. And so uh, I went to, went to the best source I could find. Yeah, Jim Ross was a great, great play, oh, yeah. play color commentator. Yep. The guy could just tell a story. So, Dude Love was was the uh, first one. Then came Cactus Jack. Cactus Jack or, was the Cactus Jack was the first one uh, who was a not a, a fictional character. So, Cactus, uh, I, I wanted to be Dude Love. I have my first match uh, coming up June twenty eighth. We're 26, 1986, and it's so, it so happens that the uh, ring announcer, Hank Hudson, is a postal worker. So he goes, okay, Cactus Jack, where are you from? And I say, my own birthplace, Bloomington, Indiana. He says, well, there's no cactuses in Bloomington. He, t he lists <laughs> Tucson. He goes, how about Tucson, Arizona? And clearly, uh, cactuses. There's one or two here. Yeah, huh? there's a few there. And then he said, you know, I believe there's a truth or consequences, Arizona. And then he corrected himself. He goes, no, that's truth or consequences, New Mexico. I said, let's go for it. And I kept that hometown for 12 years until I became uh, mankind with WWE. Wow. Okay. That, now that, that, okay, character number three, mankind. Yeah. Because that, that way are you mankind. But then you also, where did you come up with the idea that I think I'll take one of my athletic socks and put it on my head and have my co-partner, Mr. Sacco. Uh. Well, it's a two-parter, two a two-part origin story. By the time I got to WWE, I think I was 30, right? Uh, yeah, maybe uh, about to be 31. And the whole idea of having a finishing move that incorporated flying off the ring apron onto the, the concrete was becoming clearly a worse and worse idea each time we went around. Besides, it wasn't a move I could do regularly at the non-televised shows. So a finishing move should be something you could do to anybody, anywhere, at any time. Jim Cornette had brought up to me the mandible claw, and it had a great real-life history in that uh, Dr. Sam Shepard, who was the guy that the... The fugitive. The, the fugitive, right? 
whether he could not or simply would not go back to medicine, I don't know. But he became a wrestler in the Southern. He worked the Southern circuits for a few years. And he made up for his you know, lack of impressive physique with his knowledge of the anatomy. And he came up with the mandible claw, which is a nerve hold under the tongue uh, with the two fingers. And then you push up on the nerve right underneath the point of the chin, the chin. with your thumb. So it was never an idea of he's sticking that sock down his throat. But now I had two years with fans seeing this move work by the time I invented Mr. Sacco, which was just a way to cheer up Vince McMahon in the hospital. Um, and when the sock started getting over bigger than I was, I thought, why not just uh, take the, the mandible claw that's already a force to be reckoned with and put a sweat sock on it? A rest is history. <laughs> I've got a show, you know, I've got a show here in uh, Tucson tonight. At the House of Bards. Uh, by the time people listen to this, it's it's uh, it won't It'll be, be anything I can push. <laughs> It'll be burnt to the ground. <laughs> but I, uh, but I still, 24 years later, I still bring sweat signed sweat socks. And it's funny if you have somebody working the merchandise table, they go, "You're selling socks? How much? They're like they're twenty dollars for a pair." It's like no, just one. They, they why would you not sell them in a pair? They, it's a need to know basis. Uh, yeah, you don't yeah, you don't no, need I, to know. I get no. That's, that's that's I think that's fantastic. I mean, again, just the creativity that you had for putting something like that together. And, and again, when, when you talk about that, what episode when you came to visit uh, Vince in the hospital, and then also it's like, and guess who else came? <laughs> you know, that was that was hilarious. Like I said, you you had a lot of fun with that that character, and I mean, and I you know, like you said, Mister Sacco was getting over bigger than what you were. Yeah, yeah. Vince, yeah, Vince broke character. He laughed at that, right? He, he No, he, did, he didn't laugh until oh, it yeah. was over. Oh. He was dead serious. As a matter of fact, camera zooms in on him. At that point, Dan, when were you in WWE? When, what was your time? Um, like the, I think that the 96, 98 time okay. frame. So if you had promos, you remember they wouldn't, they wouldn't hand you an interview to learn. They would give you some bullet points and an outline. Yes, uh, and I guess there were instances where they would sit, tell you exactly what they were hoping to get, but in this case, it was just I'm showing up in uh, the hospital. Vince, uh, of course, he knows I'm coming. The whole goal is you got it. You have to annoy him to the point where he kicks you out. That's all we know. Uh, <laughs> he, Vince didn't even know I had the sock puppet puppet with me. He knew I, I had a birthday party clown named Yurple coming, and uh, Yurple started stealing the show on me. Oh, and. Uh, no matter how humble you may try to portray yourself, nobody in the wrestling business gets into it to uh, to be outshined. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. By you're a, looking to steal the show. Uh, yeah, you're looking, you know, especially by a birthday party clown. I was like, what do I do? She's got like 17 different props. She's got a tin whistle. <laughs> She's stealing the show on me. <laughs> the slide whistle. Logo. You know that one? Uh, so I crawled underneath the gurney. I came up with that sock and did that horrible, you know, I never gave any uh, moment's thought to how do I do a ventriloquist act. So I just said, hi, I'm Mr. Sacco, and I'm going to kiss the boo-boo. You have Vince, who is not yet a billionaire, but well on his way. Go, no, don't kiss the boo-boo. And he ended up throwing us out of the room, and the camera zooms in on him, and he doesn't look to the camera. Camera zooms in and gets this close, and he goes, Mr. Sacco. And I believe that was a difference between a one-and-done 
and something that's stuck in people's minds. Uh, like I said, 24 years down the road, and uh, I'm still selling uh, sweat socks. No, I, I think that's great because I mean, I, I did uh, end up watching more after I met you the first couple of times. I had, I, I actually did some more studying about you that uh, looking at more things that you're doing that you were, I think, at a young age, you, were, you actually jumped off like a one story, your one story house. You jumped yeah, off of that yeah. just to. That was uh, look, like outdoor little rig set up. So I, I see the Predator as a, a portrait of John Wayne over his head, right? Yeah. So big fan of the Duke. Clint Eastwood as well? Yeah. So when Clint Eastwood said in Magnum Force, a man's got to know his limitations, I took that to heart, and I realized I have a lot of weaknesses. I'm going to play them down. I'm going to play to my strengths. I'm not going to try to do things that I know I physically can't do, and I'm just going to create a style that works around what I can do. And that's when I realized the mathematical formula, like I can't jump high, but I can jump from high places. So uh, I made up <laughs> for my lack of athleticism with a pretty good uh, gravitational know-how. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, okay, on, on that note, gravitational know-how. Hell, the, the Hell is So Match, I know you probably talk about that one uh, a great deal, but I still... For you to be on top of that cage, yeah, and know that okay, yeah, Taker's kind of guided you, but but basically you're taking your bump, right? And you said that you, you you're good at calculating <laughs> risk factors. Yeah, that was that was a calculation that uh, high risk. Went, oh, yeah. so wrong. Yeah, in so many yeah. different ways. Well, look, in hindsight, I'm glad we did it because it came out perfectly. And, uh, you know, it's become, a, you know, with Jim Ross's call especially, it's become like an iconic part of popular culture. But uh, when Undertaker's music hit, I looked down and I thought to myself, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make this. And so the entire time he's walking down the aisle, I'm trying to think about whether or not I can gracefully climb down the cell without ruining my entire career. Because it took me about two weeks to talk Taker into starting it out on top. So for people, uh, you know, they might be like, well, why do you have to talk to him? Like, this is pro wrestling. Like, if I go up there and he doesn't follow me, that's the worst match in wrestling history. So I, I talked him into it, and on his way down, I'm thinking, how do I get out of it? And I couldn't find a way to, to do it, so I... Just uh, hope for the best. And it turned out to be better than I could have imagined. Uh, but, man, I was, I was terrified up there. What was the worst injury you got from that? From that one, I, there was this time that uh, People Magazine did a, a story on me, and they were, like, playing up the, the injuries. And I, now I'm in a position that I was never in when I broke in where you're trying to say it's not as bad as you think right. instead of being like, no, I swear we do get hurt sometimes. So I said, look, it's not that bad and then she she listed like a laundry list of injuries i go okay that's true but most of those came in one match so it was everything from the missing the, the getting the two bottom teeth uh, knocked out to getting the stitches under my uh lip to dislocating my jaw to separating or dislocating my shoulder i got the uh uh, you know, was knocked unconscious, so there was a major concussion involved and some internal damage, which we never had checked out. It just hurt for so many weeks, <laughs> and I assumed it had to be something there. Uh, uh, 
let, let me interrupt you for one second. So during, during, during that match, I'm actually back, I'm back in the back room watching a monitor sitting next to Terry Funk. And Terry Funk's got his tennis shoes on, but they're all unlaced. Yeah. I mean, basically, they're very, very, because he's relaxed, just watching. And I, I forget the, 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 the doc's name. Roman Scavage, Dr. Roman Scavage. Yes. But when, but when you went through the cage and down and you literally, you're knocked out. Yep. That's when literally I'm sitting back there and the, the quick thought was, let's send Terry Funk out there <laughs> to, to contend with Taker right now. So literally talk about the, 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 the thing that I was always very impressed was, was when things go wrong and, and they will. Yeah. How rings are going to fall apart, ropes are going to break, the cages are going to fall down. How how people improvise yeah. when that adversity hits uh, uh, hit like that, and the fact that Terry goes out there, you're out. This match goes out to where I mean, literally, when you by the time you come to, you don't. I don't think you even knew that Terry Funk was even out there, but you see a pair of tennis shoes because <laughs> Taker basically. Choke slams Terry Funk out of his tennis shoes. <laughs> right, you know, he yeah. Picks him up, takes the right out of the tennis shoes right there. So all, all there's the tennis shoes laying there in, in the in the cages. I go, I don't even think you knew that this all happened. I remember the the following day, we're at the next location. Yeah. And I see you for the first time after your match, and you've got ice bag up on your shoulder, you got an ice bag up on your head, you got an ice bag up on your hip or something like that. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm, I'm going. Mick, are you okay? And and you you got stitches in the lip and stuff like this. So you're you're basically saying, well, the doctor says eventually I will be. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh my, I like going, wow. Uh, yeah, wow. you know what was interesting? I just saw Terry last week. Yeah, I, uh, I was. Did uh, you really? I was how's, in Colorado. How's he doing? He's doing pretty good. He, uh, uh, this is the second time I've seen him in about three months. And he was asking, Mick Actus, you know, what brings you through Amarillo? I was like, nothing. Like, I, I'm you. not passing through. He's like, what are you here for? He's like, I'm here to see you. It took him about three times to understand that I was, you know, going yeah. quite a ways out of my way. Like, anyone with a map or a map quest can look. I was in Colorado Springs on my way to Albuquerque. And there's Amarillo, like, yeah. four hours out of the way, you know, uh, to the east. Yeah. I was like, I don't know when I'm going to be back in this part of the country again. You know, it might be a year, might be two. But I was like, if I'm within five, six hours of Terry Funk, I'm going to try to make that trip. So he's in he's in assisted living. Uh, it's sad in the sense of the guy who worked for so much, yeah. you know. Uh, he he, But he's not in a position where... You know, he's got one, he loves his two daughters, and they're great, but one lives in Phoenix. The other lives in Amarillo, but is a flight attendant, is gone several days a week. And so when you, you know, when you get up there at age and you've had your head injuries, you know, something as simple as forgetting to turn off a burner can uh, yeah. end yes. really poorly. And so he's doing good. Uh, it takes him a while to get around, and, you know, that's, he probably needed a hip replacement i had one five years ago oh, changed my quality of life uh as soon as i you know did the rehab um but going back to the cell uh yeah terry came out and this is where 
uh, if we had been in the modern day where we do we do stop matches now, you know, if someone's out unconscious, that's a good ground rule, right? It's stop the match. But uh, in '98, we didn't stop matches. No. We bought time, and that's what Dan was saying. It was uh, Terry comes out, and the crazy thing is, like, I get sent home after that. The after that next day, uh, at Raw, uh, Vince sends me home for four days to recuperate. <laughs> and during the course of Gee, four you days, think four days is the uh, yeah, I was plenty. I was ready to go. You know, I could have used a little longer, but four was it was appreciated. Uh, I had seen that Terry and the Undertaker spoke in the middle of the ring. But it was just like they looked at each other like they're having a little conversation. I didn't really, I never wondered what it was. And it wasn't until my 2013 induction, WWE Hall of Fame, I have Terry giving the induction. He does a great job. And he shares with me the words <laughs> between he and The Undertaker. The Undertaker's got a broken ankle going into the match, right? So when I go Whoa. through that cell, now you see him up there, and he, he has to, he's got to be wondering, how the heck do I get down there? So he's got to hang. He's got to drop four or five feet. You know, he's got that long wind wingspan, but uh, he's still he's about four or five feet from the ground, hobbling noticeably. Terry comes into the ring, and Terry says, <laughs> Undertaker looks at him and says, see if he's alive. <laughs> so Terry goes over on camera. People can watch as they want. It looks like he's just fumbling awkwardly with my face, but yeah. he was actually taking my pulse. He came back to the Undertaker. He said, He's still breathing, and that's that's when the Undertaker choke slammed him, and off his shoes came. And just like you said, I had no uh, I had no idea all this was taking place. So when I finally came to, it was like forty two seconds later, I rolled over to my stomach. I do like a uh, I sell it because I'm thinking to myself, look at those shoes. Like I just had no idea where the shoes came from. So. It yeah. was a, yeah. it was a, oh man, it was a, it was a crazy night, and you were there for it. Well, again, just, just to, to sit back there and watch that, and but be back to sit there and watch with Terry Funk and then, <laughs> then see things that uh, went array, but that magic of professional wrestling when things go wrong, how do they improvise to yeah. make it yeah. to keep to keep the, the show must go on? I mean, that's uh, that's what that's the real thing that, that I. I Take my hat off to guys like yourself and Terry Funk for being able to to do that kind of stuff. It's like going, like I said, even being involved in that Kawasaki Deathmatch tournament. You guys are all in this Bob wire, thumbtack, you know, pretty beat up looking uh, ring. And here I am in this really nice. I'm, I'm, there's only one match that's going to take place. That's 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 that's, uh, that's right. Yeah. Our, our that go to my matches. They could. I felt like a big, the biggest sissy in the world. You know, I'm supposed to be a tough guy. I don't want to be in your stuff bags. I don't want to be in that. <laughs> hey, one of but the even... uh, one of the uh, stipulations or gimmicks that none of us counted on that day is uh, because it was by far the biggest show they had ever done. They had sponsors, and they put the sponsors uh, on a brand new canvas, and it wasn't a canvas at all. It was that kind of plasticky thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, like vinyl, as, yeah. So, yeah, vinyl. So we're used to wrestling on a real canvas. And now here comes the yeah. biggest show of the year and we're on vinyl. And it was so hot that the first three hot. matches of the day couldn't go down to the mat or else they yes. would have physically gotten burned from it. So yeah. it was. And, and my recollection is that I come back from that first match and uh, and no one had thought to bring water, fruit juice, fruit, anything. 
And so we get back, and it's hot. It's like 103, 105 Fahrenheit. There's nothing there. And I remember going out, like, trying to ask the fans, because the fans could be really nice. But the thing is, they played their part in the sense that they would actively run from the, especially the, the foreigners, which made for a great feeling of power, but not when you're looking for something to drink. And you're going, go to Sai, Scotia drink, you know, please, a small drink. And they're running, and you're going like, no, I'm not going to hurt you. Like, I'm, we're not playing. This is for real. Some I need some of that drink, water. please. Good aside. Uh, so it just was a, what a surreal day that was. And then I watched your match uh, from the dugout with uh, Chigusa Nagayo, who's one of the great female wrestlers in uh, Japanese history. But uh, the Predators got some major uh some major matches in uh in japan as well right oh, major, I... major matches and, and movies uh, play playing across from godzilla yeah Come godzilla on, uh, get any bigger than that and uh, now i talk to godzilla once a month jeez <laughs> <laughs> the, the young man you had that amazing match with passed away no takiyama son yeah. uh, yoshiro takiyama no he he's still alive he just um he severed his spinal cord. Oh, no. Yeah, so he's um, 2016. I was inducted, and then in 17, I was I had the um, privilege of inducting um, uh, the Gracie Killer. Sakuraba, Sakuraba, oh, son, Sakuraba. Yeah, into Sakuraba. the and he told me that um, uh, Yoshihiro Takayama son had severed his spinal cord in a pro wrestling match, doing a sunset flip over a Scott. sunset of flip things. of all things. Yeah, I mean, flip, that's right? what's going. To, I mean, you know, I always tell people that's one of the most simplistic type of moves right there. But things go wrong, and if you fall backwards and you're a 250, 300 pound man, oh, things can happen yeah. really quickly. That's a shame. Uh, that was such an amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I got I got to visit him. Um, Muda son, the great Muda, uh, invited me over a few years back um, t- to do a wrestling match. You know, it was eight man tag team, which yeah, yeah. I just probably did you know sixty seconds. You know, <laughs> right? Because right. I couldn't move very well, and um, which is amazing now because Dan and I went down. Uh, back in October to Columbia, did this stem cell uh, bioaccelerator. I feel phenomenal, man. I tell you what, I feel so phenomenal. But if I could have done it then, I'd be, I'd, I lost 15 years of my life, you know, because of broken backs. And because uh, I kept breaking my back, and then I broke the rods three or four times, you know. And, but they, they did this stem cell thing. And, but like I said, sorry about dancing off mudo invited me over i did you know maybe 60 seconds in the ring and but we went and saw takiyama-san in the hospital and you know i don't know how he pulls it off but he's just happy you know he's happy to be alive i guess you know because uh shijiro otani suffered a really bad uh cervical uh injury and he was a oh man what a great guy he was you weren't over there with monster when i was there were you no No, okay all right, that was uh, 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 the guy from uh, Ohio State. Uh, Mark Coleman. Coleman. Coleman, Mark yeah. Coleman. Coleman. Hey, I've got, can I share a story with you? <laughs> oh, please. Re- 
Yeah, well, go ahead. We both got our ass kicked by Coleman. Go ahead. Just, you know, put it put it in our face some more. You're gonna, you're go gonna, ahead. You're going to enjoy this one. It speaks to the individualism and the pride of people who came up uh, as amateur wrestlers. Most competitive athletes in the world, right? Right. Because for the most part, you know, unless you're in a, a few small places, you grow you uh you you're kind of toiling in obscurity and then if you make it you know to a great college and and people know who your name right, is yeah. <laughs> so but I, i'm i'm with the, that impact wrestling you know the the tna wrestling at the time and we're over there in ireland and we go to check in dublin it's like eight in the morning it's pretty early and i see someone walk by with quite a shiner that man that man guy, guy must have been in a brawl or something and then as I'm looking around, there's like three or four other people that noticeably be noticeably bruised up. And just as it dawns on me that there must have been a, a UFC show, I get this tap on my shoulder and I turn around. I see the most hideously disformed human face I've ever seen. But that, that was before the fight, right? <laughs> you know, like I say, somebody gets a bad shiner. You, you don't too often see someone with equal swelling on both sides. And, and this gentleman was so swollen, he looked like a, an insect, you know, like when an insect, you know, flies got the whole thing. He's like, brother, don't you recognize me? I said, uh, he goes, it's Mark, Col Mark Coleman. I said, hey, Mark, how are you doing? Because we've done the show at Monster, right? So uh, as I'm talking with Mark, Kurt Angle walks by, and Mark grabs him. Kurt, don't you recognize me? And Kurt draws a blank. He goes, Mark Coleman. And the two of them, I mean, you know, when you've been in there and you've been right. uh, wrestling at the highest levels, they hug, and then uh, they're reminiscing, and uh, Kurt goes, that's right, I beat him twice, he beat me twice. And then Mark goes, that's right, I beat Kurt at the, the 94 or 95 Nationals. And, and then I see Kurt go, good seeing you, Mark. <laughs> and, and he walks away. And I go to the, our gate, and Kurt's just, like, sitting there. I don't know if he's got his head in his, ha head in his hand, but he's obviously down. I said, Kurt, well, what's up? He goes, nothing. I said, come on, Kurt, obviously something's bothering you. And he looks at me, he goes, I just don't see how he could say that about me. I said, what? He goes, he said he beat me at the 95 Nationals. He beat me in 94. I beat him in 95. I said, do you think he might have made a mistake? And Kurt goes, he knew. <laughs> I said, Kurt, look, here's the evidence, all right? Mark had been through pretty bad beating last night right he goes yeah i said ah, may or may not have had a drink of alcohol you know uh <laughs> and kurt it was 17 years ago let it go kurt let it go <laughs> yeah. and uh he just looks again nope. he goes i can't believe he said that out about me we get to uh england and because of the time zone difference we're able to watch the afc championship live and his beloved steelers are playing so this is four or five hours after we get into england kurt walks in with like the half a kodiak or whatever he, copenhagen that he would chew dip at a time and uh one of the guys comes in and goes hey kurt i heard that uh mark coleman beat you at the 95 nationals <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and kurt just took off he just left his steelers are playing and it was like the idea that anyone could think that he lost in the 95 Nationals, but it just speaks to that competitive drive because if you didn't have it, it didn't succeed, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of times people come and they, they talk to you and they're like, they're like, Dad, you don't remember me? And I'm like, going, and like, they're telling all this. And it's like, going, 
Well, I, I, and I go, I go, well, let me say this nicely. I go, I, I said, I must have beat you because I don't remember you. <laughs> I said, but I go, the losses, the losses. Oh, I remember oh, all of the yeah, losses and yeah. they're etched up in there. I was like, oh, yes. There was those, some of those still, still hot. So again, as you talk, the, the story about Mark Coleman, oh, I, I can live that same memory right there, knowing where you lost the match here or there, but uh, how you lost it. Was it due to cardiovascular pre- preparation? Was it due to did you do something strategically wrong? I mean, it's a uh, those are it's wrestling is a very amateur wrestling is a very unique sport. I mean, you know, from to be from going from being an amateur wrestler to a professional wrestler yeah. to a cage fighter, that was like my thing. And I always tell people that I always just always proudly have on, dis- on display a professional title belt, the NWA title belt, right next to a UFC title belt. And people they would you know they always recognize the UFC belt. And then like they're like, well, NWA wrestling. They're like, well, what, what kind of wrestling? I go, well, same type of stuff you see on television with Vince McMahon or, or WCW when they were still on the air. I go either WWF or uh, WCW and. Uh, People like, oh, you mean the fake stuff? I go, I said, well, I said, you said, I said, I said, you you understood what the USC was, right? And then they go, yes. I go, I go, why is it that I go, I, I go, that I've been hurt far worse in my professional wrestling career? Yeah. Which again, which is a fact that I ever have been in all of my USC matches combined. And, and that's where it's going. I always say that professional wrestlers are some of the most incredible athletic people doing some of the most incredible athletic maneuvers without the aid of a safety net. And when things go wrong, again, that the way that they are able to improvise and 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 in the match or do whatever they have to do at that point in time to where it's kind of makes some kind of sense yeah. to what just happened. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that coming from someone who's done it all like you. I really appreciate that, Dan. So no, it's we'll, we'll talk well, again. We we need to talk about your the fact that you've you've written several different books. Is, is there I mean, are you still, do you have books that are available for sale or, or, or well, have someone, you written any new ones? I have, but here's uh this is a nice life lesson. I believe something we can uh, discuss. Um, I believe the first three memoirs are available on Amazon and the other ones, including the children's books can uh, probably be bought on eBay sometimes at a real great price. Um, for Christmas this past year, uh, my kids were aware that I was writing down some stories, right? So uh, I didn't go any farther than that. My daughter warned me I was working on it like it's uh, March, to, you know, 2021. She's like, Dad, don't get upset if nobody reads this. I said, ah, they don't have to read it right away as long as they know it's there for them. Because three of my four children couldn't remember what it was like to be young. Uh, my fourth one, Mickey's 21. He's on the autism spectrum, and he remembers everything. He remembers every minute detail. It's incredible. Uh, so I sat down and I started working on this. And on Christmas morning, uh, they opened. Uh, each opened up. It's 150,000 words. That's a that's a thick book. With I was able to. I'm not selling a single one. I had 25 copies made. I was able to you know get the great leather cover. And the deal is, I'm as proud of that as I am of the Have a Nice Day, which uh, hit number one and changed a lot of things for me because I knew it was uh, something I love doing. And so uh, the lesson is, you know, uh, sometimes I'll tell people not to let anyone dictate to you what being a success is. Uh, you know, we get to do that for ourselves. And uh, you take the concept of a WrestleMania moment and you apply it to your, 
own life and say, I don't care that there was only 30 people there or 150 people instead of 20,000. That was as special a moment as anything I've ever done. Only 20,000? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've only been in front of more than 20,000 on like four Kid. or five occasions. Yeah, Ricky. yeah. Oh, you had that. Oh, you had that pride run, right? Where you guys are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. We had fun. That was, what an amazing promotion that was, just that with was, the energy. It was amazing, yeah. You think it, was, UFC, it, was, it was like WrestleMania every three months, you know. I think UFC may have taken a look at what you guys were do- doing and thought. They yeah. should have. They didn't do it right. You know, they still haven't done it right. You know, they, they could. They have all the money in the world, you know. Yeah. And they have, you know, their choice of whatever uh, arena they want. And they could do it. But, I'm. Mean, you know what? I apologize for interrupting. I mean, you're. I'm sorry. You oh, no, no. Something. I was just saying the, the the level of excitement with pride was uh, was just, oh, it was just killer. It was just great. You know, and Kevin Randleman. And, oh, uh, he was the most athletic person ever to enter that octagon, man. I'm telling you. I you think where Randleman was on that monster card, and he had just, did he knock out uh, this guy from Serbia that was... Uh, you know the guy I'm talking about, Igor? Igor? No, not Igor. Uh, ah, how can I not know oh, this? First? The other name came to me was Jumbo Saruta. And uh, the guy from Serbia who looks like Lance Storm, Krokop, Mirko Krokop. Okay. Oh, hadn't God. Randleman knocked out Krokop when Krokop hadn't been beaten? It was some kind of major wow. victory. I can't remember, but it was so cool to see these guys come in and do the pro wrestling matches and. Monster was like, it was just such a bizarre thing because it was so hokey, right? It was, it was like WWE times ten with the hokeyism. You know, yeah. it was like the craziest show I was ever part of. I had, uh, com- I completely torn a ligament and I couldn't walk following a match I had with Randy Orton eighteen years ago, and Barry Bloom. You dealt with Barry Bloom, right, yeah. Barry? Barry says, how you doing? I said, well, not too good. He goes, can you walk? I said, not really. He said, uh, listen, Bill Goldberg uh, can't make the match because of injury. Uh, I can get you Bill's money. And I said, Barry, I don't know if I'll be able to walk, but I'll be in that ring. So I, I went over there. I came in in a wheelchair. I left in a wheelchair. <laughs> I, I need to interrupt you for a second. Dad? Yes, sir. Okay, are you gonna, are you gonna make a crack up to make it right now? But but he heard he heard that money. Okay, that <laughs> <laughs> is that is always that is always busted my chops. Say that there's that the Sever will sell his soul for the right price. So <laughs> the right price, <laughs> any price. <laughs> <laughs> go go ahead, please. Ben. I don't know if there's any soul left to sell. You know, you pieced it out so many times. <laughs> but no, please finish finish up the story. Um, well, I was just just talking about how, what the the overlap in Japan, uh, where you would never have a show in the U.S. or at least at that time you wouldn't uh, have a show where anyone from the MMA world would cross over and uh, do the uh, do our stuff. But uh, it was it was a big it was a big deal. I remember when I was in when I was in Japan, there was a big where a guy went in and he uh, he went to the U.S. with the with the media contingent. And he challenged one of the Gracies, right, uh, right. and he got his oh, he got his ass, his ass whooped. Yeah, yeah. They yes. challenged Hickson, and Nixon said, "Everybody stay out, just me and him." Yeah, and, you know, and he beat that son he of a did. bitch. And, uh, and you know, a lot of and they, they picked him because he was a shooter. You know, from Japan, they thought that he was gonna 
and and from that point on, he became like a comedy figure and a pretty good one. Yes. But that whole idea of being, uh, he still should have been feared by most of the public, not right. by the Gracies, I guess. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. I, I, I believe his name, his first name was Anjo, but I can't come up with the yeah, rest yeah, of yeah, I just yeah. remember, yeah. 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 They, and, had, they had the whole film crew with them and uh, <laughs> trying to capture it all. And, uh, Travel all the way to the United States, ambushed this poor guy uh, in whatever dojo he was in. And like you said, he tells him, he took control. Yeah, he took control yeah. of the whole situation. They yeah. raced it out. You know, I'll, I'll give you what's left, you know. <laughs> and that's what he did, man. Craziness. I guess they hear the guy scream for miles, you know. <laughs> what What about social media outlets there? Making it, if someone wants to get in contact with you, yeah. what's worth the good way for people to follow uh, you or to get in contact with you? Or I try to keep it real. So the website is realmickfoley.com. Twitter is at realmickfoley.com. Facebook is facebook.com slash Mick Foley. And I have a pod that's just premiered uh, called Foley is Pod, uh, where we uh, take a stroll down memory lane each week uh, with Conrad Thompson, who's kind of like the guru of this stuff. So if people want to check that out, I'm sure just go to you know Twitter, uh, Instagram, same thing, real Mick Foley. And, uh, and we'll have some information about how you can get on over there and listen to more of my exaggerated tales. Well, that's uh, as my buddy used to say, don't let a few facts get in the way of a good story. No, no. Terry Funk put it this way. Any story worth telling is worth coloring up, right? So th- I'll give you an example. <laughs> I, I I love this story because it acts as a bridge for me from the independence to the, you know, the national scene. It's my tryout match with uh, World Championship Wrestling in November of 89. And when I walk through the curtain after the, doing that big elbow, further than I'd ever done it because I just put the guy out about five feet further than I intended, didn't even know, didn't think I could make him. And at the last second, I threw my arm out, so it was more of like an, a flying extended hand than it was an elbow. And even <laughs> in my head, like, I understand, okay, was it a gauntlet of superstars that you walked through, or was it four or five guys just, just randomly walking around? It's probably four or five guys randomly walking around, but dog on it. When I tell that story, it was a gauntlet of superstars, and I walked right through them, and they were, you know, like one on each side, one on the other, you know, a line of them. And I was like, I recognize that my story is probably inaccurate, but it just sounds better that way, yeah. right? I walked through, there were three or four guys staring at me as opposed to a gauntlet of the biggest superstars of that day. Wow. I bet it was the last, uh, last story there, but it was, uh, you know. You know what? I had some questions, Dan, about... Uh, uh, I, 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 it has been a while since I was like, is Dan going to show up, you know, jet black? with the beard and the hair, uh, I finally decided, like, you know what? I'm uh, f- 56. <coughs> I think the world is ready to accept that I don't have a jet black goatee anymore. And so I'm easing into the, This is the natural look here. But I, I didn't know how you'd be. I certainly wasn't going to bring that up if you chose to go no, the no, jet no, black no, direction. I, I, basically, uh, I'll say that within the last... Uh, well, I'll say through, through that that COVID period, yeah. When when you know the world basically is, is shut down, you know you can't go to any kind of barber shops, things of that nature. So literally, I, I had this mop of, of, of white hair. I got right. this, this wild looking mop of white hair. I didn't shave for probably uh, 
I don't know, six, eight months. I actually had a head beard. Yeah, I look like some old Mongo is what I look like. And uh, so I basically, uh, I, I thought, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, I, it's, uh, you said that you're, you're, you're 56. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be 64 here in, uh, in June. And it's kind of like going, you know, the reality June is. June what? What's I'm, your I'm birthday? Happy. June, June 9th. Ah, I'm June 7th. Yeah. I'll, I'll so, be 57. Yeah. So, so yeah, like going, it's like, I, I'm just happy that I still have as much hair as I do have in the first place. So it's kind of going, so it's like, going, you know, just go with it what it is. So I, I've been to, I've been to several different little comic cons, things of that nature, and people see the different pictures and they, they, they look, they look down, they look at you and they look down and they go, they, they know it's you. And I go, I go, that's called just for men number 45. <laughs> <laughs> and and and, uh, and then I always would tell them, like the story I, I said earlier at the beginning of the show that that uh, in the the in the cage fighting world where you're also you're looking for psychological advantage yeah, points sure. as, yeah. as well. I mean because if, if you if you if you're ripped and shred like like a Kevin Rand- Randleman, I mean I mean he just you you could have simply just put him on top of a piece of marble right, and he right. looked like a statue because he was so ripped and shredded. So I always said that you're not going to be as intimidated. If you look across and you see a gray-haired guy, <laughs> so that's why I colored my hair dark. The the, the mustache dark, you know, because the, the eyebrows, the mustache, all that. I, I see some guys that they they color their hair and then they got a gray mustache or they forget the color of their, their eyebrows. I'm going, and that was you know, I'll say the first few times I did it. Uh, sometimes I did it wrong, yeah, right. and it was like going, oh gosh. I, I, I got. I can't wait for the next couple of weeks to pass by. I, I washed your hair just to kind of fade it out a little bit because I went way too dark. I, I look like, uh, you know, Snidely Whitlash, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know that that kind of stuff. But no, it's. Uh, but now I'm just I'm just happy and content with what I'm doing now, and uh, I still I still travel a great deal, do a lot of instructional type of things, and do speaking things. So, so it's like what you're doing right now. You you you've got your combination, your your comedy tour slash. You're just interacting with the crowd. Yeah. Telling I, stories. I love it. You know, Dan, uh, I've said that one of the most difficult things that every wrestler faces is trying to make, find something that makes them feel like they did when they were in the ring. Yes. And it becomes really, really difficult to do that. And so this is something I've found uh, telling these stories. You know, the writing that book in 99 opened up some doors for me because uh, – I was like, wow, I can reach people in a different way. And I, I made people laugh out loud with the book. And I thought, what if I could uh, venture out and, uh, and, and tell stories? And uh, so I really like it. We were just talking about uh, psychological intimidation factor. And I'd like to share with this is an exclusive. I don't think I've ever mentioned this. Because I did have a one-year amateur high school wrestling career. Where <laughs> a buddy of mine talked me into going out for uh, wrestling. He was the, the co-captain of the team. And we already had a heavyweight. That was Kevin James, the the actor, King of Queens. He was uh, t- one of two guys in high school who could bench 300. I wasn't the other one, trust me. And if someone had stopped me while I was walking downstairs, my dad was the athletic director, so my and my brother was an amateur wrestler. So I had oh, grown so up. The, the, there, was, there was a little bit of pressure. Yeah, yeah. So I'd been to like 100 meets probably. Like, you know, the most, you know, a lot of guys, high school kids have never been to a wrestling meet. So that was a part of life for us, as was wrestling my brother, because my brother was uh, a lighter, a 110, 114. You know, uh, when we wrestled, I didn't know heavyweights didn't usually throw legs in. So 
when I came in, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, power and I wasn't very good on takedowns, but I could kind of wrap somebody up a little bit. And so I was better than I should have been for a first-year wrestler. And what I did in the uh, in that one year gave me the confidence to think that I could try other things. You know, <laughs> without that, I would have never done it. But I'm I'm getting ready for like our, my third or fourth match, and uh, it's a tournament situation. So it's not just a, a dual meet, one team on one side, one on the other. And I'm sizing up my opponent. He doesn't look particularly tough. And then I see him walking up towards me, you know. We're like two matches away from wrestling. And this seems like a little bit unusual. And he walks up and he goes, I I don't think this is for me. (laughs) (laughs) This is his lead? This is what he leads with? Ah. I don't think this is for me. My mother wanted me to get involved, and I was like, "Okay, okay." okay. And now I'm torn because I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot of offense, you know. Just like in pro wrestling, like I maybe I could break a guy down and try to turn him, you know. And so I was like, "Do I, I feel bad for this guy? Do I treat him gently and uh, try?" You know, here I am with three matches trying to think about how not to hurt this guy's feelings. I went, no, no. What a stud you are. I'm not going to get many pins this year. Let me see if I can wire this guy in a hurry. And I beat him in about 30 seconds, but I'll never forget that. And I beat him simply by being able to get him down and uh, sink the half Nelson in. And he had no defense for the Foley upper body musculature. But I'll never forget that. (laughs) This isn't for me. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's all I need to know, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, again, talking about amateur wrestling, it just uh, it, it is such a tough sport. You know what? When you're talking about the lessons you learn, um, I was uh, running, not a temperature, the opposite, a low temperature. Didn't feel good. The guy that I was going to be wrestling, Artie Mims from Patchog Medford, was ranked second in the county. And he had the the mohawk at a time when Mr. T, you right, know, right. was in, oh. and he, you know, and he was big man of color. And I wasn't going to wrestle. And the coach said, Mick, uh, you know, coach, I'd grown up uh, 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 babysitting his kids on occasion because my dad had hired him, talked me into going out there, and I did pretty well until I more or less uh, threw I, – I, Start of the second second period, right? I'm in the top of the referee's position. And I had this thing is body scissors weren't legal until the year I started. So guys had just forgotten about the body scissors. And at that time, I believe it or not, I had a pretty decent set of uh, strong legs. And one of the things I would do is kind of stand up and I would pull a guy back on top of me wrap them in the leg scissors and work from there. And on this one, bell, not the bell, whistle, boom. I stand up, I try to throw Artie Mims back over on top of me, and he doesn't go. He turns in midair, and now i got to fight off my back for the whole two minutes. And I did valiantly, and then there was just no breath coming in. So I did, in a sense, I guess I quit because I couldn't breathe. Boom. And that sound was so profound. That I uh, slap it the mat. Oh, slap the mat at high school uh, meet. So I lose the the meet for us. I shook his hand, Artie's hand. I shook his coach's hand. Shook my coach's hand. Then I went down in the wrestling room. I cried for thirty minutes. First time I'd cried out loud in a few years, and be like another nine years before I did again. Uh, but after I was done crying, 
That's your wedding night? <laughs> that was your wife crying that night. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, your wife was crying. <laughs> well, I what just, did I do? I just had this feeling that the rest of life was going to be comparatively pretty easy. Like, right. That was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. And I thought, how I can do anything because I just did that. I just lost the meat. And uh, I don't know. I was if I had not had that loss, uh, I would have been uh, the poorer man for it because it really, it really taught me a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, uh, I'll tell you with a quick story. Sticks, my my freshman, what it sticks with you? Yeah, forever. It sure does. Yeah. Right here it is, thirty my, my, years later. <clears throat> like my, my 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 freshman year in high school. My simple goal was simply trying to be the first freshman to ever make varsity. Right. So, because no one had done it at that point in time. So, I, I, I weighed like 165 pounds. I lost some weight. I was down at the 155 pound weight class. And when you start going up against upperclassmen, that that one, two, or three years of, of physical maturity, yeah. mental maturity, but then you, you have all these additional matches and experience, stuff like that. I mean, I, I, I got destroyed. So, I, I kept going up weight class after weight class after weight class until the last person to challenge was the heavyweight. And my, my high school coach probably should have never have allowed it, probably should have never allowed me to, to challenge the heavyweight because I was nowhere near the heavyweight's size, but he allowed the match to take place. And as we're out there dancing around there and moving around, he, he basically, he somehow trips, falls down. I fall down on top of him and I pin him. So <laughs> I achieved my goal of making varsity, but it opened up, so many new obstacles because, for, for, for example, you have to weigh a minimum of 175 pounds. At this time, you had to weigh a minimum of 175 pounds in order to wrestle heavyweight. Well, I, I weighed 155 pounds. But um, back then, you did that. Like, like today, you, you, when you weigh in, you basically are weighing in, in either a singlet or a uh, uh, just a pair of, of underwear on because they, the, Referees, they want to look at your, your skin. There's always a skin inspection to see is there any infantigo, ringworm, things yeah. of that nature on your skin. So that, that's for skin inspection. So back then you could weigh in fully dressed. So I would weigh in fully dressed, shoes on, my coat on, and cans of pop in my pockets so that I weighed up over 175 pounds. Well, that's, that's and, how uh, Sakuraba weighed in when they had the, the UFC in Japan. Uh, he was so light, uh, he, he weighed in the same way, fully clothed and had shit in his pockets, you know, in order to really? fight wow. in my order to fight in the heavyweight division. I, I, I always enjoyed, again, Sakura, but just, uh, I remember working for that same company and then when he was just a, just a green boy and here he is, he's, you know, uh, mopping floors, he's cooking the, the meals and, and, uh, each, Every every couple months, when you go back there again, you come back there, and he'd have a new shiner over this eye, or his his color is it would be that much more cauliflowered up on this, and they just they really just abuse their their young wrestlers to see how they gonna pay the price and will they endure all this punishment. So it yeah, was, and uh, it was he becomes the biggest star in Japan for yes. you know since Antonio Inoki, you know. But every yeah. every Japanese wrestler wants the cauliflower. Yeah, yeah. Was it a status symbol? It was a, it was a cauliflower ear, broken nose, scar tissue above the eyes. Is a status symbol, and now you got fucking little girls going jujitsu classes. Got a cauliflower ears, you know? It's like what the? Yes. Yeah, I, I've seen the, the first females with the you know they'll, they'll have they'll still have those four or five earrings in, but 
it looks like they, they, they put image into a pregnant ear because it's all puffed up and yeah, uh, yeah so yeah. you're like man it used to me it's like a tattoo you know he used to be a convict or a sailor right, right, you know yeah. <laughs> and now it's tough to tell what it means because everybody has one, yeah. Right? yeah so I, I realized when i got into wrestling and i'd see dan, dan, you know you dan and uh kurt neither of you had the cauliflower kurt you don't have cauliflower no i wore headgear it was like oh so it's like you don't have to pretend to have it if you actually yeah. are really good at it, right? So yeah, well again, that's where again you, you, you had the Steiner brothers. I think would actually go out there wearing headgear. You know, they yeah. used to yeah, go out there did, wearing yeah. the headgear and stuff of that nature. So it just is all part of that. Uh, their their Michigan jacket. So uh, they're just what I loved about professional wrestling is just the different storylines that they would come up with, and then you know the fact that you might have been a good guy. You know the baby face it like this, but also it's kind of like you you crossed over to the dark side, That's and right. then, or, or or you might have been a part of the dark side, and then you saw your evil ways, and you know, and, and you you came to be be good again, or you go from a single action to where these two bad guys jump on you, another good guy runs in there, and also that tag team unites. I just love the simple storylines that professional wrestling had. I always looked at professional wrestling as a three ring circus with a side freak show because the side yeah. freak show was, you know, giants, midgets, yep. um, and all kinds of anything in between. They didn't have much storyline when I was working for New Japan. You know, one night you and I would be wrestling together, right. and the next night um, Dan and I would be in a tag team match against you and Tony, you know I mean? Right, right. Uh, like, or... We would be on the one night, you and I have tag team against Dan and Brandon. You know, it's just like, what, you know, where's the storyline? <laughs> yeah, they never went with the far out storylines. Uh, all Japan and New Japan were all just based around uh, competition. Yeah. Competition, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, going back to the uh, IWA, I remember like the first time I, I, I met Leatherface, all of a sudden you hear this chainsaw <laughs> get fired out up and you hear the big roar and you see him swinging around and, and he's made somehow, I don't know how he's got, he's, the sparks are flying off and, and and people are like, they're fleeing, running away, like like <laughs> Moses parting the sea. It was like, it was like the craziest thing I ever saw. And I, I think there, uh, I think it was Tiger Ali Singh. He actually had like a big saber. Yeah. And then he would come out to the ring there, and, they, and a couple of fans like grabbed and stuff like this, and he actually swung his hand back. Tiger and he swung his hand yeah. back, you know, hit them, hit them, and knocked them on down. And they're like, "Oh no, no!" They, they actually thought like, that, that was like, "Look at this, Mark! I just got cool. this. And this was cool. It was and cool. It was like, yeah." So my first uh, tour of Japan was 1991 with All Japan, and um, I get off the bus and I see people around with they have those plain cardboard. Uh, they're not cardboard, but they're like. They're writing, it's not, it's, I don't know what to explain because I've only seen it over there in Japan. It's meant for autographs. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, but it's made out the of white a, placard. A, yeah, 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 white placard. And they're all bringing those up to you. And uh, Tommy Billington, who is a legend over there, he just rears back, not all the way back, but just from about here. And he goes, boom, straight, straight right to the fan's eye. And the guy staggers a little bit, takes a couple steps back, comes back and goes, thank you. And I thought to myself, I am not in Kansas anymore, right? Uh, yeah. And then Stan Hansen was whipping around that chain like Brody used to do. And, you know, fans know if if uh, they don't run, they're going to get hit. 
And that was part of the allure of it is, again, they get but, to but play. But Antonio Noki with that big open hand slam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, but but even that still goes on to this day to where he goes at the certain age and pow. Yep. It's like going, I. Yeah, I remember we, uh, Brian Johnson and I were there, you know, with Gary Goodridge for, uh, I don't know, Inoki Bumbaye or something on New Year's Eve. And, you know, we're backstage getting dressed and Gary's like, well, you know, what are you doing? He's in a hurry. You know, he's, I'm going to get slapped. Are you going to get slapped by Noki? No, I've worked with him. I got slapped by four. <laughs> I don't want to do it again. People line up to get slapped. For by hours. Noki, right? For hours. <laughs> I mean, I, I, hopefully he's, he's, he's ambidextrous. I can get, get tight on you get that, that right arm that's overdeveloped. I mean, I got to go back and oh, look at it. I mean, girls, wait, girls, grandmothers, you name it. He did not take it easy on any of them, man. It's, it's considered to be like a transfer of strength or something along yeah. those lines, right? I yeah. don't know. I didn't get in line. <laughs> well, you, 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 when you talk about that, because I was uh, at the uh, Columbus, Ohio, just uh, a, a couple of months back there, and they had uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Classic. But one of the things that they had on the big screen there that was taking place up on the stage was over in Russia, they had this the, the slapping contest where literally open hall there they aim right for that jawline right yeah. there and literally knock people right out on out with one big old open yeah. palm shot there like that. So that was uh, you know to, to, to watch that to watch that on the on the, on the screen there that was pretty crazy. So you know. Standing, there and you see some people that are, that, are, that are tucking that chin way down yeah, there, so yeah. the chin's not sticking out. They're like, no, no, they gotta get that chin not up there, just the way this same way, different, different that on, on that stuff. Yeah, like so, that, like uh, what is uh, Hamburger Hill or no, um, Heartbreak Ridge. Lift your chin up, <laughs> Clint Eastwood, oh, yeah, big yeah, Swede. Yeah, that's right, with the yeah. big Swede. Yeah, <laughs> lift your chin up. <laughs> that was a good. That was a good fight. Was a good, yeah, yeah. Everyone assumed that Swede was gonna get the best of them, right? Yeah, yeah. I know that guy. He's a great guy. He grew the actor, you know. Gunny, what was uh, what was Eastwood's name in that? Even? Gunny, yeah, Gunny Hightower. Or Maybe, yeah, he talked even more gravity. Highway, Highway Gunny, right? Yeah, yeah, that was it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Highway, that was it, I think. Yeah. But that was a good movie. Good, good movie. Uh, in wrestling history, I will go down as the first person that Stephanie McMahon slapped. And I told her, Stephanie, you can hit me as hard as you want. Just try to do it with your fingers and not your palm, and please don't hit me in the eardrum. <laughs> Goto hit me in the eardrum one time and broke it, and then that whole yes. match was like in slow motion. You know, all of a sudden you feel like you're, you know, you're underwater. And so once Stephanie saw, oh, we can hit you as hard as hard as I want, and then that became the bar was set pretty high, and man. She uh, she stung some people. I don't, nobody was lining up to get slapped by her, but uh, she wielded a pretty good slap in her day. I did a match. I did a match with Josh Barnett, and we were tied up on the ground, slapping each other. And I busted his eardrum. I still feel bad for yeah, it. Yeah, you know? yeah, right, man. I'm, I'm just glad he didn't come after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you were there a while for, for New the, Japan. The, the, right? Don, yeah, yes, Don knows. Don knows that I basically I when it came to the stand-up stuff, I, I suck at the stand-up stuff stuff. I, I literally used to always have open hands, stuff like that. So where I, I, I always look for pop shots on that because I was looking to perforate the inner 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 eardrum to simply 
help destroy their sense of balance, stuff like that, you know? So it's uh, different strategies for different people, for, for different folks, so. Well, I thought it was more the scream that you would elicit that would uh, disorient them, you know? Ah! <laughs> you know, this is what I have to tolerate all the time there, okay? But that's all right, you know, it's just, it's just like, you know. Have you ever seen uh, the It's Still Real to Me wrestling fan? Uh-oh. He was. I don't think I've seen that. If you Google, if you especially go to YouTube, it's still real to me in wrestling. It's a guy uh, being interviewed by uh, at a wrestling convention, and he breaks down into tears. And he asks Jim Cornette. He asks Jim Cornette, Cornette a question, and he says, "It's still real to me, damn it." And he so he's gone on to be. He's got his own T-shirts out. The, the still real to me fan. So I go to a, a, a sports bar in uh, Atlanta to watch you and Ken, the rematch. And oh, that was a good one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. You, can, you, can, you should have went to the buffet. Every, every minute of that match you could recite now, huh? <laughs> it changed the face of UFC, right? Yeah. It some rules after that one. <laughs> uh, but that was because uh, Ken would never take the first shot. Right, and he's waiting on you to shoot, and it was like, no, I'm not gonna, you know. Uh, Al Snow said he he always waits for you, and so there was, yeah, there was a lot of uh, strategy, a lot of waiting, the, the still, waiting. still, still waiting on that. We're still waiting on that fight. See, Mick, Dad doesn't understand when I said that. I okay, I was using professional psychology at that point time because. When this match does not produce any real action, people are going to hate it. You can't pronounce. You can't even spell professional uh, psychology. Come on. And, and when they start, but when they start booing and stuff like this, how are you going to let the fans affect your performance? <laughs> and, and literally, he was the point that he started to talk to me. He's like, oh, "Come, come on, come on!" I'm thinking, "Dude, I can come to you, or you can come to me." <laughs> I have that was the first time that they actually had time that the match were getting set time. I got nothing but time to kill now. Yeah, we're in Detroit. This is my hometown, boy. <laughs> the UFC, the, I mean, the UFC, um, up to that point, when when it was when it was the no holes barred era, the average match was only two minutes and twenty two seconds long. Yeah, a very violent two minutes and twenty two seconds. But you know, a lot of times you you had. Uh, uh, Bill Superfoot Wallace and Kathy Long, they were like the, some of the, the, the commentators to this. And these matches went so quickly, they have no filler. They did not have all yeah. these interviews from before. They did not have any footage from you training and things of that nature. So they're like, uh, um, they're like, they don't have nothing to talk about. Man, Jim Brown's working on the eighth of vodka, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was uh, definitely a, a learning curve to where now it's a, it's a very well old machine because they got so much previous footage on, on you to know that if any match goes short, they've got all kinds yeah, of Yeah, they got it filled. And also, you guys had that unique situation with the uh, the tournament where I'd say a quarter of the guys were getting hurt and not able to advance even if they won. Yeah, so yeah. now you have a situation where somebody's just gone 20 minutes taking on somebody who's been resting up for... Fresh, yeah. Yeah, for two, three hours. Uh, yeah. So, but that was, and, and again, that's that's not fair either. So it's just the guy that just got that just went to the the meat grinder. So right. no, it's uh. But you don't want to be the guy who's 
sitting on his ass and gets called out because you get called out that quick. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, you're not, you don't get a chance to warm up, you know, because <laughs> like, they go like, okay, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, which is, you know. And, and there you go, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a good time uh, learning all those things and being in on it. And then, uh, you know, after your era kind of waned in popularity, mm. you know, with all the, you know, the rules and yeah. sanctions and whatnot. And then it came back. It's, it's great that they still recognize you guys, though, for being uh, pioneers. Yeah. Well, again, we tried, uh, Don tried to come up, I think Don or, or Tony or Brandon, they tried to come up with a couple of you know, action figures on, on the backside right there. They ended up with the, with the mankind and, uh, you know, but they could they could come up with the, with the the dude love one. Yeah, be careful because Tony sleeps with those he things. With these, uh, yeah, so is, they might be a little stickier. This is the more lifelike <laughs> of the two. Uh, uh, mankind's looking a little too ripped to be me here. Yeah, I was wondering that myself. <laughs> I don't remember that. That yeah, no, nah, there was no mankind like that. Uh, yeah, I thought I went twelve years before I had my first action figure. I was so fulfilled. I thought, okay, I've had it. Never hadn't any idea that they, the fans would be what they you know, collectors and that people would have uh, be jump at the, the chance to have multiple copies. So uh, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's been good. Okay, was, well, what other, okay, could you end up, was it, uh, what, was it the Royal Rumble that you went in as all three different characters? Yes, it was. Yeah, sure did. That was a, because so, that, that had to be a quick change artist. Because I mean, could, it, 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 or to, to do all three characters. Oh, I wish it, I'd had Velcro or? on my boots because I wore the high boots that were up over the calves. They're about seventeen inches. <laughs> and so, as soon as I got eliminated, I have to run back, uh, and then I'd have to work on the getting them undone. You know, I'd have somebody on the right. I'd be doing the left, or I'd be on the right. They'd be on the left. And then here comes those next pair of 17-inch boots, and I'd have to come running down that aisle like I was still ready to go. I was just looking to get eliminated as quickly as possible to buy myself some time to change uh, outfits. <laughs> I, I still think that was cool, though, just to be able to enter, enter a contest three different times. It was. People. It was a lot of fun. When my youngest son, Huey, Huey's 19 now, but he started becoming a fan when he was like four, and uh, he didn't, my wife <laughs> told me the news that, he didn't think someone that looked like his dad could ever been one of those guys on TV. <laughs> and so now a few months later, the uh, I'm trying to indoctrinate him, trying to show him big matches I had in the past. So uh, Royal Rumble's coming up because says, Dad, were you ever in the Royal Rumble? And I, like, sank my teeth into it. I said, was I ever in it? I was in it three times in one night as three different characters. Four years old looks me in the eye and goes, and you still couldn't win. <laughs> That's fantastic. But I participated. Wow. That's all that counts. I was in yeah, there three dude. times. I got my participation <laughs> trophy, kid. Right, brother, look at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who was the best? The guy, your best worker that you had the you worked the best with. To me, Terry Funk was the best. Yeah pro wrestler ever because he combined a lot of different styles uh he so some people said he had two hall of fame careers uh, as a technical wrestler then when he hit about 40 years old he went middle age crazy he became the best brawler to me in the history of wrestling and he really made it easy to suspend disbelief to where i would tell like the ring announcer look man you better run 
And he'd say, like, why? This is an independent show. Here comes Terry. Not everybody's familiar with him. This is even as little as five years ago. You go, what do you mean? I better run. I said, I'm just telling you, you better run. And the guy, you know, to Terry, if he comes in all wild-eyed and that uh, ring announcer doesn't sell for him, that makes it harder for the other fans right. to uh, suspend right. their disbelief. And so Terry decks the guy, you know, that big left hand uh, up, to, you know, up and he hit him in the forehead. And after the match, I see the guy with an ice pack, and he says, I can't believe he hit me. I said, <laughs> Don't what you. part of you better run? Don't you understand? <laughs> and uh, so Terry, I thought, was the best of all time. But uh, the guys that I had a chance to work with really regularly when I was in WWE was like the top of the top. It was Undertaker. It was Rock. It was Stone Cold. Uh, it was Triple H. It was Kane. And all those guys were fantastic. Yeah, we're gonna we're working on trying to get Austin here. I guess after the um, WrestleMania. Yeah, yeah, know? he would love it. He would love it. Yeah, uh, um, he did what? What a great job he did at Mania too, right? I didn't see it. Oh, it was good. It was good. And they brought him out the second night. Please tell me you've seen the stunner that Vince McMahon took. No, oh, I didn't see man. it. Let me put it this way. I was laughing so hard. You, I saw, I saw your. I, so my son, the twenty-year-old, he starts recording me probably about forty seconds after I started laughing, so hard that my back hurt, and so we just put up twenty-two seconds of me laughing at Vince's stunner, and it got over a million views. Just, I think like twenty thousand people looked at it, but they all looked at it fifty times. Yeah, it was just a thing of beauty. You know, we try so hard to make everything we do perfect. And here's a move that goes as horribly wrong as a move can go. And it <laughs> turns out to be uh, many people's favorite WrestleMania moment. Really? Vince at 75 come in and take the worst and best stunner simultaneously. Um, yeah, it was something else. Listen, I think I got to hit the road. I got to be at the House of Bards. Uh, but I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk to you guys. Oh, I need you to do one more thing. One more you. thing. Throw your signature up there, your uh, autograph up there, please. Yeah, I'd be glad we, to. We uh, fucked around and only got boss rooting so far. <laughs> we forgot to get everybody else. So you do whatever you want, partner. Because uh, it's Dan's fault that uh, we didn't get it established to begin with. Well, I know, I know. It's just, I'm, I'm so unpatriotic. Hey, yes. you're, you're, you're 2,000 miles away, you know, you're taking the blame. You just gotta, you gotta let me know next time that that that, that, that cuts it to my salary that I, I'll make sure that it never never gets missed. That. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you, sir. But, but no, it's actually been a, been a real pleasure there having you in here, Mick Foley, dude, love, bad guide. It was just uh, really uh, just awesome just to kind of reminisce over a couple of different stories and, and being in the you know sharing the same locker room and being on some shows there together and just just uh. You've had a very incredible career, but but the different facets being a a, a writer and uh, just just the different things that you did, and, and again, how you're able to continue on and now in a different capacity for again telling the story. Thank and that's you. That's what my professional said always was always about telling the story, and and now you're out there doing it once again. Well, there was a great uh, country song. I'm not sure if Don Williams or Waylon Jennings uh, wrote it. It was called Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he has a great line in there where he says, I, I finally hit 30 still wearing jeans. So I'm almost 57 still wearing sweatpants. And uh, that's a point of pride for me that 
You know, I've been able to do well enough that I can kind of walk around, you know, with a fanny pack and sweatpants as a <laughs> 57 year old man. So yeah, thanks. Thanks guys for having me on. I got to head over to that other venue now, but really appreciate having a chance to talk to two legends like yourselves. Thank you, Bernard. We'll okay, this then. basically concludes another episode of toxic masculinity. I hopefully that we haven't, uh, offended anyone too much here this evening and if we did so what we don't care you know go go boohoo yourself to, 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 to sleep here tonight but uh, again Mick Foley appreciate you having you on here tonight and to my co-host Don the Predator Fry I will bid you adieu I do <laughs> thank you for watching another episode of Dan and Don's Toxic Masculinity you better like subscribe and share or I'm going to come to your house.